from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. One of the many things that passed over the 2021 legislative session was a gas tax increase, something that both business and labor groups have been wanting for years. But not everybody was happy about that decision, including State Representative Jason Chipman. The Republican from Steelville joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about why there may still be a statewide vote on the gas tax hike and his view on the special sessions to come in the next few months. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. We have two people that are going to be doing this show from St. Louis Public Radio's Rolla Bureau. The first person is my co-host for today, St. Louis Public Radio's Rolla correspondent. I'm Jonathan All. And our very special guest today, he represents portions of Phelps and Crawford counties in the Missouri House. Our guest is? Representative Jason Chipman. Thank you so much for joining us today, Representative. I, I was You told me while we were on, I think, in a Capitol Elevator that you're a longtime listener of this show, but a first-time guest. I absolutely I am. I, uh, I miss Joe. Uh, she was great. I miss Joe, too. So I'm no replacement for Joe. I will admit that. It, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's never a matter of better or worse. It's just different. I mentioned that Crawford and Phelps are in your district, but you want to give our listeners a more specific uh, outline of the boundaries of your district. So I represent the about the eastern third of Phelps County and almost all but one township in Crawford County. So my district essentially runs from the eastern city limits of Rolla to the western city limits of Sullivan. Give us a little bit of sense about how you got involved in Missouri legislative politics. As we're going to mention, or maybe you'll mention voluntarily. Your your election to the Missouri House was actually somewhat unusual, uh, but I'm sure that you did other things before you ran for office. So give us a little bit of sense of who Jason Chipman is. Uh, well, it's a, it's a long story, but I'll try and distill it as much as I can. Uh, I came into elected politics completely green. I never run for anything, never served on a city council, commission, or board, anything like that. Uh, as my kids were a little older, getting older, getting close to school age, I kind of uh, looked at the situation and thought back of how it was for me, and I thought I wanted things to be a little bit different. And uh, that's what really got me into running for politics. I didn't have anybody asking me to run. Uh, my seat was coming open because my predecessor, uh, Jason Smith, had just won a special election to U.S. Congress, so it was an open seat. Uh, there was one other gentleman running for the uh, for that position at the time. His name was Sean Cisco, and I hadn't made my feelings known to the local officials that needed to know that I was interested in running for that special election. So he was nominated to that, and I figured, you know, he was from the far western edge of the district, and 
I figured I got a shot. And I thought, well, this might not be the best time for me because at the time I had a four-year-old, a three-year-old, a one-year-old. My wife was pregnant. And I worked full-time for a company in Raleigh called Brewer Science. Uh, and my duties were quite extensive there. But I thought, you know, sometimes later becomes never. And I was from Crawford County. I lived in St. James, and I worked in Rolla. I, I thought I might have a shot at this. I might have the district kind of wired. And so I developed a plan. I had very little money. I think I spent about $5,000 on my primary, half of which I loaned to myself. And I developed a strategy. I worked with my sister, who, ha who happened to own a screen printing business. And so I was able to get signs and T-shirts, the things that you need for campaigning, um, at a very reasonable cost. And so my strategy worked. So it come election day in the primary, while my opponent won the special election by 40 points, I beat him by 139 votes in the primary. And it, I did some inquiries with the Secretary of State's office, and they believe that was the first time in Missouri's history that the person who won the special lost the primary in the same day. So yes, that was kind of unique. So that gentleman, Sean Cisco, he served essentially one legislative day veto session in 2014, voted for the 15 and a half hours that they were out there, and, th and that was it. And then I took over in January. So I, in a roundabout way, I succeeded Jason Smith. There was just that little blip there in the middle. But Sean's a great guy. He would have made a great uh, representative. It just didn't work out for him. So is, is Sean Cisco forever known as former state representative Sean Cisco because he served that one legislative day? Technically, yes, because he was sworn in just like any other state representative would. He had a desk on the floor. I believe his desk, the voting box did not work that day. So every time he had to vote, and that was the veto session where Governor Nixon was overrode 100, 150 times because all of the line item vetoes in the budget, he had to get up every time and walk to the dais and tell the, the clerks uh, if he was a yes, no, or a present on every one of those votes. So it had to have been a somewhat frustrating day for him, uh, but that's how, it, that's how it went. You were a pretty major figure in the debate over a, a gas tax increase that will increase the gas tax 12.5 cents over five years. And the reason that you were a major figure is that you offered an amendment to put that plan up for a vote. It was unsuccessful, but a lot of your Republican colleagues voted with you. I want you to kind of explain your mindset on that and um, why you decided to take that posture towards this proposal. It pretty much just goes straight to the Hancock Amendment that was passed in the early 80s that limited the amount uh, that taxes and fees could go up in a given year based on state tax revenues. And according to the fiscal note that was given with the bill, with the Senate bill, it said in there from the governor's Office of Planning and Budget, which is under the Office of Administration, that this bill as designed violated the Constitution. It violated the Hancock Amendment. I had never seen that in any fiscal note. Uh, I reached out to the Department of Revenue, and they were quite excited that somebody actually read the fiscal note to begin with and was using that and the debate on the floor. And so I thought, you know, it was incumbent upon me uh, or anyone to stand up and say, this is unconstitutional. And while I was not opposed, as I said in debate, to raising the gas tax, the way that we were going about it was wrong. The process matters. 
the process is laid out in the Constitution on how to accomplish these things, and it matters. Uh, this was the same argument that we made over the Medicaid expansion debate. The process matters. The Constitution says if you're going to do a ballot initiative, this is how you have to do it if it creates some kind of new spending program or cr increases spending. that has to have a way to pay for it. So just in the same argument, the, the Constitution with the Hancock Amendment says that it, this year the Missouri budget only allows for a $111.8 million increase in taxes and fees. And the way it's written, too, it says that it, that is calculated in the first full year of implementation. So if you look at the first year, it's 60 or $70 million. It wasn't all that much because it's only a partial year. But if you look at the next full year, it was going to be over $130 million additional dollars, which violates the Hancock Amendment. And so that was my basic argument. I wasn't arguing the merits of the program. I wasn't arguing the merits of a gas tax increase. Uh, we talked about that a little bit, about how this was mainly going to affect poor people because it was aggressive ta a regressive tax and because they tend to drive older vehicles that gets worse gas mileage, while as uh, uh, more affluent people are going to drive newer vehicles that get better gas mileage. And so they're not going to pay as much. Plus, you add in the fact the way that the rebate system is set up. So this, this gas tax proposal includes a rebate system, a refund system, based off a program that was designed in, North, in South Carolina. Currently, they have about a 15% refund rate. And if, it, if I was taking a guess, I would say it was the people who itemized their taxes that are taking this because they already do these things. The average person isn't going to do that. And if you did the calculations, uh, once the tax was fully implemented at 12.5 cents a gallon, if you have a vehicle that gets 20 miles per gallon and you drive 15,000 miles a year, it's going to cost you an extra $93 and change in extra taxes. And a lot of people are going to look at the way that the wording is in the bill on how to get your refund and say it's not worth it, especially when they're worried about anything else. But when I look at that $93, if somebody making or somebody getting 20 miles to the gallon, if they're lucky. If you have a truck, it's probably going to be a lot less. If you have an old truck like mine, it gets 10 or 11 on a good day. And so they're probably not worried about keeping all of their receipts, sending them in, taking pictures of them, writing down the VIN number of the vehicle that, you know, that was, the gas was used in. They're not worried about that. They're going to be worried about how do I keep the lights on? How do I keep diapers on my baby? What are we going to do for food this week? They're not going to be worried about that. But when I see that gas tax increase at $93, I can tell you that's four and a half cases of diapers because I still have one in diapers at this time. And so I know how much that costs. Representative, I, 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 with all respect to the process, the, what do we do about the problem? Missouri roads and bridges are a mess. And especially in your district, there's a lot of rural area that doesn't get a lot of attention. There are a lot of uh, county roads and state roads that need to be improved for wear and tear on vehicles and also for life safety issues. You know that. You drive all over your district. If, if not this, then how? And does this just kick the can down the road where Missouri has to go another year without adequate funding to make basic repairs to roads and bridges? My argument was not about that at all. As I stated during the debate... I went out with Governor Parson at the time of the last gas tax increase and, and was trying to get people to vote for it. Uh, I had to talk to many people and explain to them that the Missouri Highway Patrol's budget already came out of the gas tax funding. And so that most of them didn't know that. I talked to highway patrolmen that didn't know that. 
And so how is the average person supposed to know that? And so for me, that was kind of a, uh, a look into uh, the, what the average person sees and doesn't see on how we spend money. And so the argument for me regarding this gas tax proposal was just about the process. And you can say that, yes, we have the seventh most roads and the 49th, we're 49th in funding. I understand that. And I think if you took that straight to the people, they would understand that too. You don't have to come up with all these bells and whistles. Just lay out the facts. We have the seventh most roads. We're 49th in funding. Would you like better roads? And just put that in front of them. The architects of this proposal were greedy. If they would only proposed two cents a gallon, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation right now because it would have put it under the Hancock threshold. And we could do that. In a 2018, we had a, in 2018, we had a task force that was dedicated to how do we increase funding? What do we need to do for our roads and bridges? And they came out and said that we need, I think, believe it was a 12 cent gas and 10 cent diesel increase. However, they said that violated Hancock and it would have to go before the people. If the legislators wanted to do two cents, it would work. They could just do it at two cents. And so we've heard about that over the years. I believe Senator, former Senator Leibla uh, proposed a two cent, two cent, two cent to, to make it six cents over a three-year period, which would not have violated Hancock. And if they had not been greedy and just left it at two cents, I would have had to stand up for two hours uh, during this debate. And like I said, we wouldn't be standing here right now. So you have to ask yourself, do the ends justify the means? And we have to ask ourselves that all the time. We want certain things. We want better schools. We want safety. We want all these things. But the means that we go by about which we, we do these things, they really do matter. Uh, look at the countries where they don't have that option. Um, they would tell you definitely that the means really do matter. I'm going to play a clip now from Jeremy Cady, who is with Americans for Prosperity Missouri. And his group is trying to gather signatures to put this bill up for a vote. And I'm going to use this clip as a jumping off point for my next question. I wasn't as involved in the 2014, but I do know in the 2018, um, I don't believe anyone opposed publicly. Uh, I, don't, I don't think there was, was any campaign, any organized effort uh, by anyone to oppose that tax, uh, that tax increase. And yet it still failed you know, at the ballot box. His first part gets to, I think, a notable question that probably is posed by people that are in favor of this bill. I think that they would argue that people want to put this up for a vote because it would almost certainly fail at the ballot box. And then we would be back at square one when it comes to finding road funding. How would you respond to that argument? I would agree with it. Uh, Budgeting is about priorities. And if the people of this state decide that they don't want to pay more in gas taxes, we're going to have to find other ways to fund that priority. And if that's out of general revenue, then that's how we'll have to do it. I mean, we did uh, pass a bonding issue to build 100 new uh, bridges in the state. And well, what do we pay that out of? We pay that out of general revenue every year in House Bill 1. And so if, if that's what the people decide, then that's what we will do. Uh, plain and simple. Um, like he said, when it comes to the bells and whistles of these programs, because the legislators think they're so smart in, in their proposals, people can see through that. And if you're not straightforward with them, they're going to reject it, whether it's good for them or not, because they just feel like they're 
legislators, that politicians are trying to take advantage of the situation, trying to take advantage of them, think they're not smart enough to realize the situation that we're in with our roads and bridges. And I think people are a lot smarter than that. So if you just propose it to them straight ahead, here it is, and you phase it in over time. It's not a, a big jump all at once, especially coming out of a pandemic when you have all the things happening at the federal level that are going to increase gas prices over the next two or three years. They'll understand that, and it won't be as hard of a hit to them, and they can kind of plan for it, they can budget for it, and they can understand it. When you put in these programs that make us want to sound smarter than we really are, uh, they get mad about it, and they'll vote against it, whether they're for it or not. Do gas taxes disproportionately affect people in rural areas, and is that the best way to fund this kind of thing? I mean, you mentioned maybe there just needs to be a different way. Should we just get rid of the gas tax altogether (laughs) and find other ways to fund things? Because, um, you know, it disproportionately hurts people in rural areas. And there is a big push at the federal level to go away from using gas. And Mm -hmm. so there are going to be a lot of people who are driving electric cars on roads, creating wear and tear, and they're not going to be doing anything to contribute to, to the maintenance of Yeah. It. One of the things that I did love, like about the proposal was the increase in the alternative fuel tag fee for electric cars because they don't use any gas. Uh, even the, the gas hybrids, the, the plug-in hybrids, they use a whole lot less than a, a normal gasoline engine, but of course they're using up just as much road. And so they should pay, there should be some kind of offset for that. And they, you have to do that through a fee structure. I, think, I believe the state of Oregon at one time were, was looking at installing trackers on vehicles to find out how many miles you drove in a given year, and you were going to pay a tax based on that. Well, what if you live, what if you're driving out of state? How does that count? And then it becomes the privacy issues of the, the, the government tracking me where I am in the state. And it really just wasn't a better way to do it. Um, if you've ever sat in traffic in St. Louis County on 270 during rush hour, uh, I would argue that uh, sometimes being in a rural area is a benefit, uh, that the the city drivers, especially the suburban drivers, are sometimes disproportionately affected because of how much traffic they have to sit in. While out here, uh, you don't have that so often. You have the, the occasional hay truck. You have the occasional logging truck uh, that you've got to wait for, but uh, it's usually not nearly as long. Yes, we have to drive farther. Uh, but we have the freedom that comes with that as well. And so that it's all about trade-offs. You know, we, we choose uh, to have less access to certain things for a certain amount of freedom that we get in living for living in the country. We'll be right back after this quick break with more of Representative Jason Chipman's Politically Speaking episode. And we're back on Politically Speaking with St. Louis Public Radio's Jonathan All and State Representative Jason Chipman. So in the second part of the show, I want to go over some of the likely special session items and potential special session items. And I'm going to throw this to Jonathan because he sat through the Senate meltdown over the FRA tax, and I think that he may be best suited to ask about that issue. Thanks, Jason. So, Representative, uh, FRA, just to get our listeners up to speed, is the uh, tax or fee that medical providers pay, and a lot of that that money funds the bulk of the state's portion of Medicaid uh, payments. Without that tax, it's going to upend the uh, the structure of our health care in Missouri. And pass, renewing the FRA is routine, right? It is. And um, But some members of the Senate like to use that opportunity to try to add in things that may or may not be related, depending on your perspective, specifically issues surrounding abortion. So the legislature didn't pass anything. 
Um, do you think that there can be an FRA special session that will be limited to that and that legislators won't try to tag other things onto? Uh, I think we'll have a special session. I don't think there's any way that we don't have one as to what individual legislators tried or try not to do during that special. Uh, if, if you look at the history of all of our special sessions and look at all the things that are filed uh, to try to tag on, uh, there's always something. Uh, and senators, of course, they're a special uh, uh, type of legislator. Uh, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, and, and so I think the, uh, the chances for a clean FRA happening are slim. However, I think it will happen. Uh, and one of the things that the framers of this country got right was they, they forced us to compromise. The way that the House is made up, the way the Senate is made up, they force compromise. Nobody gets everything they want. We're not a parliamentary system. And we're not a majoritarian system. And so if you can get 18 senators to agree to something, then we're going to go with it. Uh, at the same time, you're not trampling over the rights of those other 16. Um, in the House, we we passed it the way it was when we sent it over there. And, of course, it's, it's up to the House and Senate to compromise. It's not just the individuals. It's the chambers. And then, of course, the legislature has to compromise with the executive branch, with the governor's office about getting something done. Uh, but if nothing happens, then uh, it should be make for an exciting next fiscal year for our budget chair. The governor has said that he doesn't want to call an FRA special session unless the leaders and the budget committee chairs come to him from both chambers, come to him and say, yes, we have a deal. Is that a good way to do government? Yes, I think so. In this situation, I believe it is. Because if we open up a special session, we only have so long to make it happen. And every day that those people are meeting is costing the state money. And so if the governor says, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to call for a special session until you have an agreement reached, it means we can get it over faster. And it gives both sides, uh, the House and the Senate, as well as the senators, some room to come to some kind of agreement, some type of compromise. Uh, it doesn't always have to happen out in the open, but you're always we, what we want to have is the end product. Uh, so it's not necessarily a bad thing to have that out there because we don't want to waste everybody's time. It's not just our time. It's all the staff that has to come into the building uh, to upend their plans. Um, but we need to do it soon because our health care providers, they have budgets as well. They need to know how the next year is going to operate. And I'm not going to talk to the uh, – the veracity of the program itself, um, which I think could always use some tweaking. Uh, all of our health care uh, laws could use some tweaking. Uh, but as we sit right now without a viable alternative in place, ready to go, we need to get this done. I, I do want to play a clip from Senator Bob Onder, who is one of the senators that is trying to attach a, a language onto the FRA, basically saying that the General Assembly cannot give any taxpayer dollars to Planned Parenthood. And I asked him if putting this issue in special session is going to remove the controversy or debate over whether that should happen or not. Senator Wheeland and I offered leadership many, many paths to get an FRA done, as long as it contained um, one sentence of his that uh, would protect innocent human life. Uh, this was especially important, of course, after, um, after the Missouri Supreme Court ruled last summer that we could not defund uh, Planned Parenthood uh, in our budget. Um, so, um, you know, w w if, if, if Senate leadership were willing to make that one concession to allow that uh, one pro-life protective sentence 
in the FRA bill, we could have got that done. We could have avoided special session. And what Senator Onder was referring to as far as Senator Whelan's push is to not have Medicaid pay for several birth control methods. Um, I, I understand the reason why Republicans want to do those things. Uh, like the legislature is overwhelmingly anti-abortion rights and want to, you know, prevent any funding from going to Planned Parenthood. But is, is FRA really the right venue to do these type of things? Isn't this putting in jeopardy a lot more important endeavor simply to do things that you could do next year separately? I think importance depends on your perspective. It always does. Um, I think that Senator Whelan and Senator Onder feel strongly enough about this subject to include that in the FRA bill. Um, and what it's going to take from, if, if they're not willing to sit down on that, what it's going to take is use the mechanisms of the Senate to overcome that. They have that ability. They could, the Senator Rowden can bring the bill up, let Senator Whelan, Senator Onder filibuster, stand there for as long as they can, stay in session until they're willing to sit down or they come to some compromise. Uh, they don't just get to hijack the session completely. Uh, we have ways. Th these are the means here we're talking about again. There are the means to either come up with a compromise or get the FRA passed without Senator Whelan's amendment. It just takes some willingness on the part of Senate leadership to actually make it happen. I, I want to move on to another thing that will be in a special session that is probably not top of mind right now, and that is congressional redistricting. Um, the reason it's not top of mind right now is that Missouri is not going to get the granular census data probably till August or September. So I, I don't know when the special session is going to be, but I've heard anywhere from early fall to maybe November or December. What's your expectation about how that's going to go? This is the first time in modern Missouri history where Republicans have the governorship and both chambers of the legislature during congressional redistricting. So you all can basically do whatever you want. Do you have any ideas about what will actually happen when you reconvene for that? Uh, I don't really expect the districts to look all that different just because our state hasn't changed all that much population-wise. You're going to have some movement here and there, but overall it hasn't changed a ton. And so I don't see the districts looking all that different. I think you're still going to end up having six Republicans, two Democrats. However that shakes out is, is how it's going to come out. But just given the timelines with the, with the way COVID affected the census data, we're all going to be under the gun. And it's unfortunate that we're going to have to spend uh, taxpayer dollars to get this done. But I mean, if we were going to have to do it earlier in the summer, then so be it. But um, it, it's just part of the process. Uh, we'll, we'll take it as it comes. Do you think that Missouri Republicans will be under any pressure nationally to figure out a way to have that number be seven and one instead of six and two, uh, especially with how tight the House is, looking at some other states that are gaining and losing seats, knowing that, for example, in Illinois, they're going to work very hard to try to make the one seat that they lose be a Republican seat and maybe even go further to figure out another way to divvy up the map uh, in a, a micro with a microscope to try to uh, gerrymander it just right. Do you think R Missouri Republicans will feel any heat nationally to try to change those numbers? I think all Republicans in every state will feel that kind of pressure. Uh, I think they do every time we go through this. Uh, both sides are going to go have that pressure to make it work as best they can for their side, uh, and that's the 
the politics of it. Uh, that's the unfortunate part of it, but that's the way it was set up, and that's the way we have to deal with it uh, when it comes to gerrymandering, uh, so-called gerrymandering. It happens to both sides. Both sides do it. Both sides want it. They want to get what's theirs, and they're willing to give a little on their end to get more of what they want. Uh, both sides do it. It's not, a, it's not a local issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's not a Democrat issue. It's just what it is. Um, I would like to see it done differently, but that's just me. But, yeah, I don't think that there's – sure, there will be some pressure to try to make it 8071, whatever uh, you want to come up with. But I don't see it really being much different than 62. Well, let's talk about a couple of special sessions that are more aspirational at this point and are not necessarily a sure thing. Uh, one of them is trying to do election-related items. So that includes uh, reviving the state's government-issued photo ID requirement, which was basically rendered inoperable by a court decision, possibly pairing that with winnowing down the uh, state's excuse-based absentee system. But the other thing that uh, Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft wants to do in this clip is also make it harder for constitutional amendments to pass. Well, the first thing I would say is that when it comes to the uh, constitutional way of, of, of amending our Constitution and doing that through the initiative petition process, what I support is raising the vote threshold. Um, I have concerns about raising the signature requirements just because I think it's virtually impossible for a grassroots organization to do an initiative petition that will amend our Constitution. We're just almost reserving that ability to people with millions of dollars, and I don't think that's appropriate. But I do think it's appropriate that we should only change, only amend our Constitution if a wide range, a broad range, a large percentage of Missourians agree with it. So what's kind of your thought about that? Because I've heard Senate leaders say, we can do all of this stuff next year. But as Secretary of State Ashcroft told me on a previous podcast, that gets said a lot. And sometimes it doesn't happen. Would you want to see a special session on election related items? No, I would not. I, I completely agree with Secretary Ashcroft on raising the threshold to 60 percent. I agree that we probably don't need to raise the signature threshold. Uh, I would like to see an increase, make it, it has to be, all those signatures have to be gathered in all eight congressional districts rather than increase the signature threshold. Uh, but it should be harder to change the constitution than it is a statute. Uh, any of the statutes, it's 50% plus one. It's not, it's not easy, but relatively it, sh it should be a whole lot easier than changing the constitution. And those things that we have one of the largest constitutions in the country. We have bingo in the constitution. There's no reason to have bingo in the constitution. It's just some of those things are just ridiculous. Uh, we don't need to have a constitution that's that easy to change because those are supposed to be our core beliefs as a state, as a nation, as a people. And to make it to where it's 50% plus one, where you can get any outside organization to come dump a bunch of money in to the state and propose this uh, an amendment saying, oh, this is the greatest thing ever, when it's not, um, it, it makes it too easy to change. It makes it very hard to live under. It's perceived that some of this is a reaction to some more left-leaning things passing uh, in a state that's majority uh, Republican. Um, are you at all concerned about how it looks that Republicans are now that there have been some more left-leaning things that were passed by the people saying, well, we should make it more difficult. Not really, because I've been hearing this since I came in. Before 
clean Missouri came in, before the minimum wage increase came in, uh, when I first came in, this was being talked about. That we, uh, I remember having a conversation with former Speaker Har about this particular issue, raising the threshold to 60 percent to pass a constitutional amendment when I was, uh, I might have been before I was sworn in, uh, because we knew then that the people that had been in the building a little bit understood that being able to change the Constitution as easy as it is is not really a good thing for the state. So I don't think it is necessarily a reaction to some of the things that have passed recently. I mean, if you look at the things, the two things on the ballot last year, would you have ever guessed that cleaner Missouri would have passed and then a statewide term limit would have failed. Uh, I would have bet the exact opposite. I would have put good money on the exact opposite. Uh, but I think the people have seen what the, the downsides of term limits were and they saw the downsides of clean Missouri uh, once the, the full extent of that measure was known to everyone. Uh, but I want to just make go, go back to my first question. You're not in favor of having a special section on election-related items? No, I am not. So you want this just to be handled in regular session next year? I just want yes. to make sure we're clear on that. Yes. I mean, special session needs to be for something urgent. Uh, we can still get all those things done regarding elections next year in preparation for the 2022 election. Uh, we, we have time to do those things. We have time to do a lot of things in session. One of the frustrating things about session is so many things get held on to until the last couple of weeks as leverage for something that somebody else wants. And it's a shame because there's so many good things that we pass over to the Senate that the Senate can pass over to us in the first couple of months that we should be able to knock out because it's good policy. And it gets held up because of personal vendettas, leverage, politics, I mean, you name it, any, any number of things. Uh, and it's one of the things that makes working in that building so difficult and so frustrating is, is that people uh, take a lot of personal affront to certain things happening uh, that they don't like. Uh, my final question before we let you go, the, the other thing that some legislators want is making it more difficult for cities to shift funding from law enforcement to social services programs, which is either derisively called or not derisively called defunding the police. Is this another thing that you think should just be handled in special session or should this not even really be handled at all, given that it would kind of micromanage how municipalities deal with funding with, with police that may be different depending on the cities? I think it's it really depends on the specific instances that's happening. I believe that Kansas City does not have control of their police board. And so for them, it's a little different because it's done by the state. Uh, however, I'm still not in favor of a special session uh, regarding how Kansas City is going to fund things. They have elected officials. They're held accountable to their voters. If their voters don't like it, they can choose new elected officials or put pressure on them to change what their priorities are. Uh, this is something where the state, while meaning well, uh, I think is probably going to um, cause more harm than good in doing something like this. And this is all just a reaction to uh, bad policemen, uh, people doing bad things. We're not saying that all of the police are bad. We're not even saying that the, uh, policing shouldn't be reformed in some way. But when you have bad apples, you need to get rid of those apples, not throw out the whole bushel. Uh, it doesn't make any sense either way uh, to do this. 
Well, Representative, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you, Jonathan, for facilitating this conversation. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. For all of our stories, stlpr.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Jonathan, how could people follow you on Twitter? At Jonathan All. And how could people follow you, Representative, either on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? My Twitter is at jchipmanmo 120th It's that long because Jason Chipman is just a, a really generic name that I guess a lot of people have. Uh, on Facebook, uh, Rep Jason Chipman. And that's pretty much all I have. Well, thank you for having such a long Twitter handle. And thank you for joining us. And until next time, so long. Hi, everybody. It's Jason again. Before we go, St. Louis Public Radio is looking into racially restrictive covenants and deeds in the St. Louis region. In the early to mid-1900s, white homeowners and realtors commonly used these tools to keep black people out of certain neighborhoods. If you live in an old home, check your records. They might have clues that could help inform our reporting. Look through your real estate documents for restrictions on who can own it and live there. You can find more information on how to share those documents and your stories with us on our website, stlpr.org slash housing discrimination. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.